This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. What I wanted to talk about for a long time now is centralization. Blockchain is intended to be a decentralized ledger of something, right? Bitcoin is very much decentralized. Uh, in Bitcoin, we have that as the, the prime design goal. Uh, essentially, uh, everything else, including speed, including usability, including flexibility, is below the two main design um, objectives, which are decentralization and security. In, and in Bitcoin, I actually have a hard time finding proper examples of centralization. Of course, you can name mining is decentralized with so and so many mining pools, but not necessarily with that amount of, um, of miners. You could name that um, development is centralized around five, I think five currently um, wardens of the GitHub repository. But then again, if that GitHub repository behaves in a way that users don't want it to behave, they would just switch to another GitHub repository. That literally happened with BIP 148. It's been a while. I don't really remember the times anymore. But there was this SegWit activation when uh, the main GitHub repository of Bitcoin behaved in one way, namely not enforcing anything. And a lot of users wanted to enforce SegWit. So they switched over to a different repository. So you, in some, some cases, have like seemingly centralization, but not really necessarily behind the curtain. Having decentralization, not having anything centralized, is great for stability, but it's horrible for for flexibility in a sense. And one case where, where that was uh, noticed early on, and I think I talked about that before in a different session, was uh, was Ethereum. With the start of Ethereum, I mean, Ethereum tries to get flexibility in quite a lot of cases, having a different smart contracting language, that kind of stuff. But Bitcoin is very uh, resistant against changes of the protocol. And Ethereum did not want to have that. Ethereum wanted to be able to change later. They needed to be able to change later because the first version with this, um, that they started with was not finished yet. So they, um, they had provisions basically in the rules of the blockchain that allowed for later upgrade to something else. How did they do it? They added the difficulty bomb. Uh, we did have a full session about the difficulty bomb, but just as a, as a refresher, they made it so that the rules of the Ethereum blockchains as they started um, would not be able to survive. They, they had a, a clear end date going towards that end date. Uh, the difficulty would explode exponentially. Uh, so it would no longer be feasible to maintain the blockchain. Uh, and they did that with a purpose. They did that so that they could um, at some point suggest a replacement for the mining. Um, with something else, with proof of stake, uh, and would be in a situation that that you don't have one faction saying we want a change and one, one faction saying we don't want any change because we don't want any change. Because this we don't want any change is not an option. The not changing would, would grind to a halt, would just not be able to survive. So that was an effort from them to... Um, yeah, to, to overcome decentralization in a sense, right? They, so they start a decentralized system, but build in a provision that enforces a centralized agreement on an upgrade path further down the road. 
it was a great idea and at that time uh it did not work out quite as planned especially since the timeline that they intended to do was not realistic and we still don't have proof of stake you know already two and a half years i think uh, above the original date of the difficulty bomb and it just always prolonged 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 the difficulty bomb so it didn't really work but that was the the main objective at the time and then obviously if you have to have a decision on how do we go forward uh, the original idea on who does this decision is the community but somewhat the community as embodied by the ethereum foundation did not really happen right? so for the most time having decentralization in bitcoin at least to me and please tell me if you have a different take on that but at least to me is that is serious there is decentralization that's the prime design goal where for other projects including ethereum decentralization is something that you put on your banner um, to carry it to war but uh, underlying that you do have centralization towards the decision making for upgrades and toward other things that i will come to in a second so the, the next or uh, one point in time where um, where it was quite obvious that that this that centralization does take place or that there are centralized decisions uh, was the dao a uh, decentralized autonomous organization that even had decentralized literally in its name but still it did have first roles it had a curator who had certain certain roles and certain pre-decisions to make and the curator was also a key role if i remember correctly when upgrading the the DAO to a new world so what those curators were voted on inside the smart contract so it was a uh, an endeavor that that was really with good intentions decentralized it did not have any any single point uh, of, of centralization by in its design until of course it failed dramatically there was 150 million dollar worth of ether stolen from the dao uh, at a time when that was a real uh, dangerous percentage of the overall outstanding ether and a decision had to be made how do we how do we get away from this situation like it was stolen by a bug in the dao smart contracting code uh, that allowed um, an attacker to, to to use smart contract in the literal way that it that it was deployed so in the literal code but at the same time not in the intention of the dao so it was an honest bug a mistake in programming the thing that allowed some way to take away the money without without that being the intended behavior of the smart contract the decision had to be made and right? how do you how do you recover from that if you if ethereum would have allowed those ether to go out the window there would have been dangerous first to the market price of ether but also second uh, when it comes to moving over to proof of stake further down the um, down the road and we just talked about that and this would literally have been a relevant percentage of the overall ether so also a relevant percentage of the overall control over the network after the move to proof of stake which obviously people did not want and uh, this was this unwound in a, in a rather centralized way by the ethereum foundation uh, making or suggesting that, that that this is just forked away and you, you cannot hold up all the pretense um, of the time. We did have an education session about 
a carbon vote uh, smart contract, which goes into that history a bit. But essentially, the Ethereum Foundation suggested to do a fork uh, and then let the community dance around a bit in order to finally come to the decision that this fork needs to be made. And already prior to that, prior to the, the immediate aftermath of the Star fork, was that uh, Vitalik Buterin was in a chat with the with the exchange owners and told them in the chat, please stop trading and everybody stopped trading. At that point, Ethereum was clearly centralized. You can argue if this is still the case or if we record from that. But at that point, Ethereum was clearly centralized. Uh, the DAO carried the banner of decentralization quite literally into battle, uh, but died in a rather centralized way. There were further incidents of that type Banker comes to mind, and quite recently, the DeFi um, contract and all of those. Uh, in, in all of those, the, the situation was slightly different. There were unintended behavior um, of the smart contract, and then a centralized solution already baked in. So let's, let's look at Banker, for example. There it was a bit extreme, even. Banker is a smart contract that's supposed to um, to provide liquidity for uh, for a trading pair, um, really just some sort of, of scale and can put something there and get something out on the other side. So you put Ether in and gain Bangkok tokens, um, or the other way around. Uh, and the exchange rate depends on how much of which is still around. They did lose quite a bit of Ether. I think it was thirteen point five million, if I remember correctly, US dollar worth of Ether. Literally, with the with the with the explanation, the wallet used to upgrade smart contracts was compromised. So they did have a centralized centralized way for upgrading that smart contract. If they realize there is a mistake that needs to be rectified, or if they just have a better idea on how to do it, uh, they did have a provision to upgrade the smart contract. But then the question is obviously, who can upgrade that? And the answer to that was, there is a centralized wallet that has the right to upgrade. Uh, but that wallet was compromised. So an attacker could just change the rules of the smart contract by deploying an upgraded one. Uh, and that allowed him to receive ether that were held by the contract. So at that point, even though they still carried the banner of decentralization out as part of their, of their project, this source code was public. And for everybody who cared to look at the smart contract, it would have been publicly visible that there is a provision, a centralized provision for upgrading. Nobody did. It literally came as a surprise to everybody when this when this happened, when, when this hack happened of Bangkok. Uh, people were a bit upset uh, about the centralization of the smart contract. What I do want to get at with this education session is that up to now or up to recently, we, we always still had the pretense of decentralization. And this seems to fall for the better or the worst. I mean, it's um, having the pretense, but not really the substance is no good either. So let's just be honest about that. There are some things that are not decentralized, that are very much centralized. Um, prime example of that would be CMTA20. CMTA20, I think I mentioned that a few times, but CMTA20 is uh, uh, from the CMTA, so from the uh, Capital Markets and Technology Association, this Geneva-based association of law firms and uh, banks, rather big one. 
it's from them an attempt to make uh, an ERC20 token. So a token that is compliant with Swiss law when it comes to representing shares. So you can have shares on the blockchain complying with Swiss law by having this ERC20 contract following the CMTA20 rules. And crypto storage just added support for CMTA20 governance operations to, to our solution, to the security on the approval terminal, to the full deal. But those governance calls are very much centralized. So you have a centralized, you have the, the, the specific specification of CMTA20. That was a requirement in order to fulfill the Swiss regulations. Includes calls to pause the smart contract so that no tokens can move. You can literally just a centralized party can decide, I want to pause this now. Uh, and then also unpause, of course. You have a centralized party that can uh, move funds without the owner or the current holder of those funds agreeing with that. Uh, that's intended in the case of CMTA20, that the centralized party is, say, the um, board of directors, and that if the General Assembly decides, hey, we need to, there is a shareholder agreement that says that this is a bad lever clause and that person has to give back his tokens, his, his shares, that this can be enforced without that person agreeing to it. But this is very much a centralized effort, or centralized uh, properties of that, of that smart contract. And this is in order to comply with Swiss law. This is just one example. There are plenty of others. Like this, this pretense of decentralization falls and just leaves, leaves a centralized token or centralized object living on a decentralized platform. Two things for that. First, let me go like three years back by now, two and a half years, October 2017, when I discussed with lawyers a similar topic already, quite early on, but how could shares on a Swiss law work? And we came roughly to the same conclusions as the CMTA20 now did. Of course, this was just rough discussions and not a, not a, not a full draft. But by the basic idea that we do have to be able to hold uh, trading on a smart contract, uh, that was pretty clear like, in the first 10 minutes of the discussion. And I even agree with that. Uh, when it comes to the DAO, for example, the, the hard fork of the Ethereum blockchain that followed the DAO, uh, if you have a situation like that, that you have a split of the blockchain. So previously you had one blockchain with that token. After the split, you have two blockchains that both carry that token. Then this is not a problem if you have, a, if you have Ether. Then you just have the Ether on the one chain, the Ether on the other chain. They will just have a different, ex a different price. There will be a market exchanging those two. But if you have a real world, like a share in a, in a company or a token representing a car, whatever, so something that is bound to the real world, and you have two of those now that both claim to be the original one, uh, then you have to make a decision which one, the, the real world holder of that, of that good, so the board of directors or the the key to the car, whatever, something in the real world needs to, to specify, do I honor the left chain or do I honor the right chain? And until that decision is made and someone publicly announced, it's a good idea to not be able to move that token. I, I'm totally fine with that. But what I also suggested back in the days was, let's, let's write the provisions in a way that it's guaranteed that they cannot be abused. So for example, when it comes to pausing, halting that contract, uh, it's, for example, very easy to, to write an, um, a provision into the smart contract that says this can be halted by a centralized authority, but everybody is allowed to unhalt it, unpause it after one week. And the centralized 
party can only repause it another week after that. So you can pause, but just by the rules of the smart contract, it's guaranteed that this cannot be paused for good, that this is only temporary measure. Uh, I, I mentioned that because I, I want to somewhat talk about, you have to strike the right balance between centralizing something there, which might be useful, and centralizing it in a way that, that it loses the decentralized properties that make it useful to put it on a blockchain. That immediately gives rise to the second point. It's, I think, um, to this point, very much unanswered question on which things are useful to have on a blockchain, which things are not useful to have on a blockchain, and which role does centralization play there. When it comes to being able to take away tokens from somebody, so the, the example that I mentioned earlier, then I would, for example, argue it should not be up to the board of directors to do that. It is not up to the board of directors in the real world, as far as I can tell, but you, you would need to go through courts to do something like that if it's, if it's really a um, bad faith situa situation. So should then maybe the courts have the centralized authority to make, to feed those changes, those enforced actions into the smart contract? That leaves us with a very weird situation that those might not be technologically savvy enough to do that even if we give them an approval term. Okay. I did want to talk about this for a while. I think um, given the current situation, I will aim for more economics topics in the near to mid future. So we'll probably get in touch with a few of you and also talk to a few outside speakers. It'd be very interesting to get some in for these sessions these days. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by CryptoFinance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch.